This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Hello and welcome to the um, final session in this venue for the day. Um, uh, so we're pleased to have um, John Smithson here, longtime friend of AIDC, um, and Rachel Brown, um, ABC broadcast journalist and creator of the wonderful podcast Trace. Um, before we begin, I'd like to respect, respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners um, on the lands where we hold our conference and we meet today, the Boonwurrung and the Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, and pay respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Um, unlike the other sessions, we're not going to be using the app for questions today. We're going to have one of our lovely volunteers um, with the mic, roving mic, so um, you can put your hand up when question time comes and we'll use it that way for the human-to-human interaction. Um, so I'm going to hand it over to um, Rach now and she's going to introduce John and um, take it away. Thank you. Hi, thank you all for coming. I'd also like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the land. Um, welcome to this session about creative challenges in crafting story. We're very lucky to have with us John Smithson today. I won't go into his back catalogue because we'll be here for the whole hour. Um, but some of them, um, as you know, include the Oscar nominee, Danny Boyle's 127 Hours, um, the BAFTA winner, Touching the Void, which also broke box office records, and he jointly produced Sherpa, directed by Jen Pedham, which picked up five awards. So very lucky to have him with us today. He'll be drawing on his experiences crafting I Sniper, which looks at two snipers who terrorised the Washington public in October 2002, turning the gas pump into a stage for bloodshed. John, can you give us a quick overview of this piece and, and the climate around these attacks? Um, uh, first of all, hello. Uh, it's very nice to be back in uh, AIDC. And it's incredibly nice to finally talk about this project, which we've been working on for about four sodding years. Uh, it's been mostly a labour of love, and this literally is the first time, for various reasons, been able to talk about it, and the first time beyond the, the sort of our tight-knit family that made it, that it's been seen, or clips of it seen. So it's really nice to have that opportunity. This all started really just because I fancied doing uh, a sort of six-part crime serial. It had been the time of Jinx and making a murderer and all of that, and I just thought, they, that seems a fun thing to do. That's a really interesting challenge. It's a bit of... Um, it's a creative challenge. This was a hell of a creative challenge, and I just quite fancied it, really. And we were lucky enough to get some unique elements that enabled us to revisit what is a really good story of these two guys who went on a murder road trip and then terrorized Washington, D.C. for 23 days. And D.C. was raw. It was one year after 9-11, and literally they were killing at random back of a Chevy Caprice and instilling terror into the, uh, into the city and the country beyond. And there was something about it that seemed to have the legs, given the elements we will go on and talk about, that would sustain over six hours, which is a long time to fill. So that's Ice Sniper. 
So I'd like you, I'd like to play you the start of this uh, six-episode series, and you'll hear Lee Malvo. He was the younger of the snipers. You'll hear him speaking as he prepares for his first kill. It is unnatural to kill anything. Once you've done it the first time, it becomes easier each time. The house is on the hill. At night, because of the tree, it's sort of dark, and you can just walk up. No one will really be able to see you. I walked up, all the steps on the porch. I walked to the door, rang the doorbell. And um, I spoke to her. I made a few jokes, made her laugh. I heard her, her child in the background. Do not make this personal. This is not a person. This is simply an end. You are here for retribution and punishment. Be natural. And after three minutes, calmly, Raise your hand and pull the trigger. I walk away as if nothing has happened. That was my initiation. I was succeeding. Came as medical aid call. It's a young innocent girl. The gunshot wound to the head. There's blood on the floor. There's blood on the wall. No apparent reason. Yeah. Now that you've done this, there's no going back. There's no unwinding of time. Your life is over. Kenya was the first. And it's sad to think what happened here, and it's sad to think what started here. Master Puppeteer. That was an instrument. 
a ghoul. I was a thief. I stole people's lives. Terrorizing DC Sniper attacks, cold-blooded killer taking innocent life. It's not the American I know. What appears to be homegrown terror. Your children are not safe anywhere at any time. The question is always bothering me. What inside me made that possible? a very confronting and powerful and important series um, that I've been quite blown away by, actually. But I, I wanted to ask you, in terms of access, this precious gift called access, um, to Lee Melvo in a supermax cell in Red Onion State Prison, how did you reach out to him and get him to commit? Um, can I uh, do a Sarah Ferguson and just answer it another way? Sure. I learned her technique yesterday, so good. <laughs> um, you don't need me, I can... No, 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 no. No, that, that clip, there's, there's sort of, those are the two, two reasons there why we spent four hours on this, uh, four, not four hours, six hours over four years. Um, number one, I'm still shocked that this 16-year-old boy was so under the influence of another person uh, 30 years or so uh, older than him that he could go up to the... the the door, a woman, 21 years old, with her six-month-old baby gurgling on the bath mat upstairs, talk to her, be friendly to her, then put a gun in her mouth and blow her brains out. And there's something for me that was so incredibly powerful. We said in that sequence, what's the story? What is the story behind the killing? And then secondly, you just heard some the audio. And that was a unique opportunity. Most of the other horrible atrocities in America, uh, Columbine, uh, Sandy Hook, the Las Vegas, you name them, uh, normally people are killed, the, the shooters are killed there and then, or they're in jail and they're executed. This was a unique opportunity. And what made Malvo so special was he had chilling, bone-chilling, cool about what he did, you saw glimpses of it there. But also he talked with an amazing lucidity. So, and we'll go into the detail, we accumulated about 100 hours of audio with him. And that was just a fantastic storytelling uh, tool. And that's why this wasn't just a two hour special on History Channel, it's why it could be a, a six hour serial. What was your question? <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry, sorry, just right. access. I mean, this okay. lives or dies on access, this okay. series. Yeah, so he's now in... Um, they wanted to... Because uh, he was guilty, obviously, and he, they wanted to execute him, but he was 17. Uh, so they put him in solitary, and it, solitary means solitary, and it's um, uh, a, a supermax prison uh, on the edge of Virginia called the Red Onion. 
the very important person in this series, a woman called Mary Jane, MJ, a very good producer I'd worked with on previous films, had uh, got to know Malvo. She's a PhD criminologist from Oxford and sort of knows what she's doing. Uh, that's an understatement. And she started writing to Malvo and then gradually got on his call list. And so, and she could talk to Malvo and Malvo wanted to talk. And then once we started this production in 2016, he would call, he was allowed one phone call. He was in his cell 23 hours a day, one hour he could walk in what was like a chicken coop, food put through the letterbox, and then he was allowed one call a week, 15 minutes, and he would call Mary Jane. And she had to go around with her phone and with a little box of tricks that would record it, and do what we could to improve the sound quality. And he would call at random, over two years, and that was what made this possible. And she, uh, and we can come into all the editorial issues of that, which were, were many and complex, mm. but that was what enabled it. And is that, was, is that what was in it for him? Because as storytellers and documentary makers and journalists, you have to think, well, what's in it for them? Um, I talked to MJ last week because I about that, um, knowing I was coming here. He genuinely, he has... He has expressed remorse, genuine remorse. Um, there's a whole tricky balancing thing we'll talk about as well. And there was something about he wanted to talk and he felt it right he talked for the relatives. Now, whether they feel that is a different question. But he felt that he wanted to talk. He's clearly a very intelligent guy who in another life would have a college degree and a nice job. And um, he just wanted to talk. And he wanted to share, and I always found it incredible, the things he could have done with that 20 minutes each week, and sometimes there'd be locked down in the prison and the call wouldn't come for six weeks, um, that he talked to her. And, 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 so, and he would say what he wanted. You couldn't say, oh, oh can you just give us three minutes on the killing of Kenya Kurt? You couldn't do that. Um, so that was incredible and humbling. And, he, and she subsequently met him and, we, and he knows about this, he knows about everything. And he wanted to do it freely. He knew what, exactly what was going in there and, and he wanted to do it. That gives me a headache just thinking about that building a storyboard on a call that may or may not come. Did and MJ always have to be ready to press record? Yeah, she was, um, I mean, we had plenty of um, creative fights. Um, Jen Pedem knows we can have lots of nice, um, <laughs> great fights in the cutting room, but a very good friends afterwards. And um, um, but she was brilliant. She was always on duty, and um, it, it was totally stressful because we'd sold the whole thing on the Malvo access, and we knew we were going to need maybe his voice is six hours, maybe his voice is an hour, maybe more, maybe an hour fifteen. I don't actually never actually done a calculation. Um, of that six hours, we'd have been stuffed without it. And there was a period where we lost him for two months. And you have no idea when the call's going to come. And we're just getting more and more and more stressed because I was just thinking, what can we do? So could she be in a supermarket and just have yeah. to start recording? Yeah, yeah. Wow. And then having the most intense discussion about lining up people and when to squeeze the trigger. You know, it was an extraordinary, you know, and I, I've got to give her credit absolutely for remarkable... Uh, resilience and, 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 and application, and we couldn't have done it uh, without her. Do you know how she walked that 
tightrope of getting what you needed and also being a good human being and go, well, he hasn't spoken to anyone for six weeks, I'm just going to let him talk? I mean, that was an, a nightmare because, look, we all do the same job or sort of. And um, towards the end, particularly when we were cutting the films, uh, the calls were still coming because we never reached a point where we had enough audio. And uh, incidentally, I always, once upon a time, we thought we might be able to film an interview with him because he was in a, a less severe prison and then they moved him to the Supermax and it was impossible. But I actually think it's much, much better just to have the audio and it's much more powerful. And um, why, why do you think that? Just because the theatre of the mind in terms of his voice? or um, Maybe because I started my career in radio and I like audio. Mm. No, I think it's just... Uh, I think you're not distracted by the background. You're not distracted. Oh, he looks a bit older. And, and it's just really intense uh, listening to him. And, um, and his one call, and he just wanted to talk about how he was feeling. He had severe depression. He had lots of things. There was lots of stuff going on in the prison. He wanted to talk about that, and we wanted to go. And then he would talk, and he would just do three minutes, which you could never use because he covered the whole story. And imagine being in a cutting room trying to drop. You, it was unusable. You needed to break it down. So towards the end, without him feeling he was... You know, it was really delicate star. We sort of had to say, can you take us through that? Can you take us through that? Can you take us through that? Uh, but then he would go off-piste and do it, and, and, and you just couldn't. And then at 15 minutes, it just cut off. Uh, and, and, you know, that, so it was sort of terrifying. Mm. And, and all these shows, six hours in the edit, everyone taking forever to edit, and none of them were ready because we didn't have the material. And then suddenly one day there was a miracle and we got an hour. And I said, Hoover, every, we, got every, we got cover on virtually everything we needed. And then the other... Um, no, I'm not sure I can say it because it's a bit of a plot spoiler. Um, no, I won't. Um, but, you know, he said something that blew our minds on the... Mm. Literally out of the blue. Can I talk about that? No, it's not your decision, is it? Um, <laughs> it's your decision and if you say um, yes, I'll come to that later. Um, no, I won't talk about it. But it, it was a, a fascinating uh, revelation that, that helped understand big questions that we had. And he just said, and it, um, MJ took the course and said, I want to tell you something. I mean, and that was... Uh, and so mm. it, it, that was what... So, you know, long edits are hard enough as it is. But when you have no idea about the key... And because we did it without narration, absolutely without narration... No pundits, no uh, no recon. He sort of was the steel bar that went through the six hours, and 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 it, it was. And people were asking to see cuts and all that. I said, well, no, just not quite ready yet. Well, how how did that work? How do you craft a visual narrative when you can't film the protagonist? Um, we were blessed with brilliant archive, uh, amazing audio, all those nine one one calls. Uh, amazing archive, an incredible cast list of hundreds of cops, as many cops as I've ever interviewed in my entire career were just in this one film. We didn't use, I mean, everyone, because there were so many police forces involved. Um, the relatives, uh, there were survivors of the killing, of the sniper attacks, and, and the loved ones of those who died, and, and that was a hugely sensitive uh, situation, as you might imagine. And 
we had all that material, all of which was really good stuff that you could make a really good 2R from mm. and the sort of thing we'd done, things like that. I liked your maps too. It was almost like an autopsy of murder. The, the I, did, I didn't like the long, them. Sorry. Oh, you didn't no, like them? I had a big oh, row okay. about that. Um, they worked yeah. for me in, ter- in terms of setting a place. Oh, but... okay. And they were sort of, okay, and they were, mm. had, it had a look. Uh, and um, so, and then I kept on saying, have we got a film yet? Have we got the series yet? And that was why, A, it took a long time, and B, it was slightly terrifying. Uh, and then towards the end, we really had to say, and MJ had to say to him, we really need you. Can you please just... And he wouldn't want to talk or something really bad or he, someone had threatened to kill him in the prison. You know, real heavy shit stuff. Mm. And you feel really crap saying, can you just talk yet again about when you had the guy in your sights at the petrol station? Uh, but, you know, that's... Uh, it, it's, it's that horrible meeting of the reality of production, which is what we do, but someone who is in the most unbelievably, um, you know, uh, tricky... Difficult situation. I might play you a clip at a petrol station, actually. This is from episode two, and it again takes you inside the mind of the sniper um, and gives you a clear flavour of the core of this series. There were several cars. There was the Indian, the taxi driver. There was a white lady behind him. I drove up here and I wound down the passenger side window. It was a very warm day and my son was in the back. I remember those two particularly because I kept going back and forth between them. And I looked to my right and there was a man, taxi man, filling the car from under the license plate, which I had never seen before. And I looked at him and he made eye contact with me and I I sort of smiled and nodded. I was a little embarrassed that I was staring at him. And he sort of nodded back. I was directly in line with him. And then I looked down to get my bag and pull my credit card out. I chose a taxi driver, the Indian. He was a better shot. And then I heard a bang. I got out of the car. I was shaking. I was really terrified. Nineteen eleven, I have one town, there's blood all over. I'm at the mobile gas station at Aspen Hill in Connecticut. Start your fire biscuit, please. I don't know what I have yet. I believe we we're still working off pagers at the time. I get a page about the mobile gas station shooting, Mr. Wallaka. He'd been shot. We got a major crime scene
Hispanic female being on the bench reading a book. She died immediately. Can I ask a question? Um, this is serious. You, we're in the middle of a big debate at the moment. Did people find the use of the gunshots invasive? It was the actual, not the actual gun, it was the, the actual type. We're having a big debate about gunshots. Did you think, people think they were necessary? Or did they feel anyone, and not, what? Did you, did anyone else feel that? Did you? We're having a real big debate because we're still in final mix on some things. It is, it's, F, it's the FBI firing the actual gun, so it's totally realistic. I watched it just then and I thought it was too much, but it's really typical of these pitch battles we're fighting all the time. But, uh, but you don't want, there's so much more, this gives the impression it's just about killing and, and whatever, whereas it's a whole lot more. But you don't want to give that idea. You don't want to be too. There's a balance about voyeurism, which there's a very fine line on, on crime shows, and mm. I don't want to go too close to that line. Sorry, thank you for the focus group. You do. Uh, and does the gunshot make. We can just go straight to questions. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, we're 40, 42 minutes. Because it's just. Uh, I mean, it's been quite unfair because you, there's six hours and there's a huge amount of material which mm. is totally putting it in context rather than looking like some schlocky crime show. But you still thought it was voyeuristic. And the gunshot made that worse. Um, all comments duly noted. <laughs> Sorry, Rachel. Well, let's go to that because this, this is just um, a very brief overview of the series, which is... Um, <laughs> very eloquent and, and touching and I think very respectful. So let's talk about how you walked what is a very precarious tightrope between understanding and exoneration. Yeah, so we, we had the 23 days in terror, of terror in Washington as the through line and then we hung off at all these other stories, uh, one of which was both of these individuals were utterly screwed up individuals both, you wouldn't be surprised to know, had terrible childhood. Malvo was beaten by his mother, his father disappeared. He would fell grossly under the influence of Muhammad because he was seeking father figure. Um, Muhammad had been, uh, was completely affected by being in Desert Storm in Iraq, seeing racism there, became quite militant, anti-white, anti-government. You know, uh, one of the Academic said, you know, America did its very best to make Malvo with what it did to him. Oh, sorry, Muhammad. And um, he converted to Islam as well. Muhammad was his, his Islamic name. And um, so we were really seeking to understand, particularly uh, Malvo, but to an extent Muhammad, what would drive people to such extraordinary lengths of violence? What was the anger that fueled Muhammad to do that? And I know some of the reasons which we can go on about because his children had been taken into care and he wanted to get his own back on the state. And the girl that was murdered, he, that he got Malvo to murder, was the niece of, uh, of 
um, the best friend of his ex-wife, mm. and he was hoping to kill her because she had been instrumental in him losing his kids. So it was direct motive. But what we wanted to do is absolutely understand more about sort of the making of the murderer, making murderers, and particularly the Malvo character because we had all that audio with him. And that, and in doing so, it was such a fine line. And because we even sometimes found ourselves calling him Lee. We called Mohammed Mohammed and we called Malvo Lee. And because he was polite and pleasant and articulate and all those things, it sort of plays with your mind, and particularly MJ, this was a, a tough thing for her. And, uh, and, and we went right up until that line, and we said to everyone, and particularly, you know, I work in London, I'm British, um, this was a very American crime. It doesn't mean it isn't shocking. But, you know, a lot of people I know believe he should have been executed. A lot of people, um, you know, think there's no business at all. It's just he's not worthy of examination of his background, which I think is bollocks because I think there's total reason to understand what drives somebody and particularly what created that absolute slavish loyalty to this man 30 years older than him that you could actually put the gun in the mouth of the girl to prove yourself in the, initiate, in the initiation ceremony and all the stuff he subsequently did. So we thought that was absolutely journalistically fair game and then there was this tightrope and we could get up to the tightrope and beyond that, one ounce of showing undue sympathy, extra sort of empathy. We just ran a mile from doing that mm. and it was such, and it was helpful in our office um, at Arrow uh, one of our execs was American who lived in Virginia, where most of this happened. And, and an otherwise very liberal guy, lovely guy, he's now at Discovery. And he said, kill the bastard. And he was uh, uh, genuinely saying that. And Howard was our sort of test, you know, we used him a little bit as, in case we'd gone all soggy, left-wing, North London liberal, which is what I am mostly. But, uh, and, and so it was really, it's a real challenge. Mm. Uh, and, and, and also trying to really understand um, Mohammed as well. And that's what gives the film real depth. And there's two extraordinary women that we'll see clips of, maybe not yet, uh, but, and they all help maybe answer your point that there's a lot more depth to this than your average TV crime show. Uh, and, um, and I think that's, and that was almost the hardest thing, walking that line between understanding and exoneration. And that was that, and, and every day in the cutting room, we were debating that. Has there been any criticism that you were perhaps too sympathetic to him? Um, well, no one's seen it. <laughs> That's all to come. Um, but I'm really happy to defend it. I'm really, really happy to love a good fight on it. But mm. um, um, the broadcasters, the, the financiers, um, the people that commissioned it uh, were absolutely with us and accepted uh, we just were the right side of the line and would have been pretty quick. And our commissioning editor lived in, you know, he used to go to one of the petrol stations that where people were in fear of their lives when they were filling up because they were, that was the extent of the terror the snipers had created. And, and so he was another really good sounding board and we were just worried that we were all a bunch of soggy Brits and so we needed that voice in our ear. And also we were so aware of our responsibility to the families 
And some of the testimonies that we don't have time to show are genuinely heartbreaking and, you know, clearly. Uh, and then they all had to be in court listening to the 911 calls, listening to, you know, a truly, truly horrible experience. So real, that's why I said it was really difficult because it was such a balancing act, you know, between the relatives, the law enforcement, Malvo, uh, and, and balancing all of that balancing the needs of trying to craft a narrative over six hours. It mm. was that, that's why it was, a, it was a really great creative challenge because it constantly threw questions at you, which is sort of why you do this job. You, I, I guess you were very lucky with him too because he surprised me how eloquent he was. Yeah. Um, very poetic at times, very insightful capacity for deep thinking. Um, at one point he said, in order to do what I need to do, you need to become that monster. Yeah. As you were working on it, did you see him as a monster or someone with a very warped sense of love for Muhammad? <laughs> I, I'm vaguely reluctant to pontificate on matters, uh, and my, my degree didn't cover matters as such as that. Very good on English politics, 1945 to 1972, but... Uh, That's, uh, I've got that coming up later. Um, yeah. it, but we knew a lot. There were some key people, one of whom we'll see the clip of, who, who was the woman that got inside his head, a fellow Jamaican, and uh, and reading the stuff she wrote, that helped understand where... But I still can't understand... You know, everyone... Lots of people are seeking father figures. What? And, and yes, his dad was shit. Yes, his mum beat him. Yes, he did try and hang himself when he was seven um, or six, I can't remember. And... All those things, he, I, I still can't understand the, how he how he readily did those things. Mm. Uh, but there's quite a lot in the film where we explore that with him, yeah. and that's where it gets really interesting. And again, I hope deals with. Uh, I'm very keen. Um, or do you want to know um, the murder porn thing? Is yeah, I'm coming up to that. Okay, I won't say anything. <laughs> Oh, right. um, but I did find it interesting that they seemed to be each other's missing part. You know, uh, yeah, he was then, missing a dad, yeah, Muhammad yeah. was missing his children. Yeah, and they found each other and it was an extraordinary relationship. And, and Muhammad was charismatic uh, and until his children were taken off him and given back to his ex-wife, you know, there's evidence that he loved his children and he was an extraordinarily good dad and everything. And Muhammad just saw him in a video arcade in Antigua where his family had moved to, and I almost sort of fell in love with him. Just that's the dad I've been seeking, and it was all about the father he never had. I just don't want to be simplistic, journalist as psychologist because mm. I don't like sure. pontificating. Too. And there are times that, that that's not um, illustrated because there are times where Muhammad drops Malvo like a hot potato. They're sure. arrested at one time, and and so yeah. that started me thinking: Well, is he just a pawn? I, I, I still don't plan? fully understand. Mm. Because he comes, and, and, and just in the dealings with him, and I, I, I hesitate almost to use the word, but I'll use it, there was a likability. And there was, he would joke sometimes, and he'd do us these, he'd do these, we asked him to, he'd like drawing, because he had nothing else to do in solitary. And we used a lot of his drawings, which he'd use, he'd get some M&Ms and some Q-tips, and that would be his color brush, and do drawings of key moments. And we thought they were a bit too cutesy, but actually they're very effective and means we don't have to reenact them. Uh, and, and he would do things to please uh, like that and send us more drawings and he would do poems and stuff. 
he, he, he's extraordinarily complex. And I've done some crime shows about, you've probably heard of Myra Hindley and the Moore's murders, uh, I think, you know, and done two or three films about Myra Hindley and the, all these extraordinary people. And, and because crime, well, that's a separate debate why you do crime programs, but I, I still can't fully understand the con. I can Mohammed somehow, that's simpler. And, and, and Desert Storm and bring um, a, a black soldier in Iraq. He didn't know what he was doing there. And, and he saw moments of discrimination against the locals and that completely. And he burned down the tent of his commanding officer because he was so angry. You are seeing that sort of anger in Mohammed. I still don't fully understand. Um, but, but the people who I trust are you know, are revealing. And, you know, the whole nature-nurture debate, my God, we've talked about that long enough. And, and I don't quite know. Uh, I, I just know there is a lot of bad nurture going on. Um, clearly, there's a big dollop of nurture, uh, nature, but there's a massive dollop of mm. failure of um, nurture. nurture. Did I get that right, Warren? You yeah. did, yeah. The next clip is about just that, about nurture. So to, to set the scene a little bit, Muhammad was executed Malvo was tried, so they're preparing Malvo's defence strategy. And in this clip, we hear from Malvo's mitigation specialist, Carmelita, and his teacher, Winsome Maxwell. And it's about his defence strategy and how his lawyers were trying to get him to open up so he didn't get the death sentence. He wouldn't shot Mohammed. He just would not. Mm. He just said, I did it all, Mohammed did nothing. And they couldn't. And, and, and they were desperate to execute him. And he was 17 desperate to execute him and he was in Virginia where there's the death penalty and the lawyers just what can we do what can we do this guy is just he won't let go and and there's clearly it was obvious that uh, Muhammad was going to get executed and 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 he wouldn't let go and then that's why in desperation they well the, the clip picks yeah, up the story. So this is this talks about Lee Melvo's breakdown at being confronted with some goodness in the world when he'd been filled with all this hate. Stakes were extremely high. We were in dire straits in terms of getting him ready because he was still, you know, really trapped into, psychologically trapped into Mohammed. I said, you know, I need to bring someone up from Jamaica. And the person who I felt was best suited for that was this teacher, Winsome Maxwell. Walking in and seeing him it was very traumatic. When he was a child, Lee needed a mother, and I had taken Lee in. What he craved most was forgiveness. He wanted most my, my forgiveness. It was going good, and they were just talking and so on. They weren't too much, talking too much about the crimes or anything like that, just reacquainting themselves. And then, and then the following day, we went back, and it was a totally different person. He kept saying that all that night, he just heard voices. Voices compelling him to remain lawyer. And he was now struggling. She said to him, tell me, Lee Malvo, who do you owe loyalty to? Do you owe loyalty to me, your teacher, who took you into her home and treated you as her son? 
Or do you owe loyalty to that man who brought you here? Because the least like that, he will protect whoever loves him. Yeah, that gives you, um, Kamito was extraordinary. The, she was the first, maybe the only person, and helped. she was Jamaican, and she was a sort of brilliant specialist in sort of working with people who had done unimaginable things. And she really got into the mind of Lee Malvo and was sort of key. And, and eventually they had some success and um, he's not executed, but he will spend the rest of his life solitary. And that, uh, you know, and it, you know, in his cell, he has one picture, uh, Kamita, uh, which I just thought was quite uh, touching. And, uh, and the teacher as well, because she looked out when Lee's mother just disappeared um, and crossed with him. She took him in, a teacher took him in and, and lived with her. So this was devastating for her. Mm. These two women bring a lot of warmth to this series um, and, and goes back to what you were talking about in terms of being both forensic and compassionate. In doing that, did you seek the blessing of all the victims' families involved and, and was that a tough process? Um, that was really hard, all of that. So And also... Um, I think we talked to 18 people in total who had either, a handful had survived, or the others were the husbands or wives uh, of those um, that had been killed by uh, Malva and Mohammed. And, um, 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 and some, we, the problem we had, this, uh, because of the nature of the audio and coming in, we had no idea how much audio there was uh, and what it was going to be saying, and what would it be said specifically about the particular case. So some who we felt we could tell that we were, we could tell them that we were speaking to um, Malvo, and that we were getting interviews, and genuinely at that time, we had maybe an hour or something, so we just had no idea that it would be such a spine of the film. Um, and so we told some, and others we chose to hold back, and we did this in consultation with the lawyers, and it was quite a difficult editorial judgment. And then what we did about uh, nine months ago, maybe it was, we, when the films were locked, we talked to everybody and said precisely what was in the film, what Malvo, so that there was no surprise, and obviously, um, Everyone had given consent film. Uh, we had no legal issues of doing this. This was purely um, a sort of moral issue. And, you know, I'm sure if someone had objected at that point, we would have removed the story from the film, films. But mm. um, so we felt better. And we're going through a very heavy compliance process at the moment um, with the BBC, who are taking this in the UK, I'm pleased to say. And... Um, uh, and full-on BBC compliance is a pretty uh, full-on process. Uh, but rightly, I have no problem going through it. But so w I'm really glad we'd done that detailed reach out to... The it was just the timing issue that we were never sure what was the right time and the wrong time. Yeah. Um, I found the, the treatment of the families um, very compassionate and it was done quite deftly. And, and I've seen a lot of true crime and I found myself bawling about 20 minutes towards the end of episode six because these people, they do... God, they do really get to you and their heart and their loss. Some of the saddest stories was some of the people still alive and how they're dealing with that. 
So that would have been, I'm assuming, at the forefront of your mind when you're making sure that this isn't what we were, what we were talking about a little earlier, um, what's been dubbed murder porn. We, uh, and I must mention, and it's t- totally remiss of me, I talked about MJ, our series director, a very talented woman called Ursula McKenzie, who may be known here, and did a very good Harvey Weinstein film recently, and Janice Sutherland, who'd done some very fine films for me in the past, uh, it was all women team, by the way, apart from me, uh, which was, uh, so I sort of thought was really good, actually, and really helped on some of these issues, except everyone ganged up on me. Um, but um, they approached the interviews with extraordinary uh, sensitivity, and we absolutely didn't want to go, we just wanted to go softly, softly, and deftly, and, and all of those things. Mm. And, and they deserved the screen time Malvo was taking up so much time with his audio and you mm. sort of had to feel that they were listened to. So it was sort of one-third relative, one-third law enforcement, one-third Malvo. Was of. there an apprehension about giving over their stories? Because it is their story, so no. giving, no. Why, and why an apprehension? Anyone with the story that that painful, it would be a big deal for them to hand over their story to make it your story. They, um, they um, all wanted to. I think only... There's one key story that they didn't want with a particularly harrowing call, the final gas station um, attack uh, that, um, that they didn't want to take part. And she, and, and she was an FBI analyst, so there was a sort of complex law enforcement. You know, a lot of people in Washington, D.C. work for the government. Um, so the, but most of them embraced, and some of the interviews were unbelievably moving for a whole bunch of reasons, but that was about the skill of the directors working. The directors did the interviews. Two directors made three films each, and um, that was their skill. Uh, you must credit that. Mm. And, and MJ was sort of wrangling all the families, and, of course, that crucial thing of being there 24-7 for when Malvo rang. Um, I want to play the last clip. I want to leave enough time for questions because I'm sure you have many burning questions. This last clip um, deals with a country coming to terms with this horror and its introspection. Um, and just before this, there's a journalist that asks, uh, you know, we, that says we might never understand it, but if we don't ask the question, who will? Breaking news uh, from CNN, and that is that the jury in Chesapeake, Virginia, has apparently reached a decision... It is life in prison without parole. He is not getting the death sentence. He is getting life in prison without parole. I was not happy that he wasn't sentenced to death. I'm thinking, you're putting 14-year-olds in prison, adult prisons, for 40 and 50 years. Why can't you sentence a 17-year-old, you know, killer to death? I know a lot of people think he should have gotten a death penalty, but you start to wonder, you know, how you really feel about this person in front of you. These were heinous crimes. Yeah, he did all these murders, he shot all these people, but how do you put a child to death? And you sit back and look at how he got in the situation that he was in. Was he really that responsible? He's not the same as Muhammad. So, I'm okay with the fact that he wasn't uh, put to death. When they didn't give him death, I wasn't disappointed. I wasn't happy. 
I thought he's evil. Um, I think to this day, Malvo would kill tomorrow if he could. I remember thinking, why do we keep making these people? The saddest part about the cyclical nature of violence is that we do not learn from it. Guns, violence, bigger, I mean, everything about this country. The Sniper in DC was a very American product, made in America, bottled in America, fed to Americans, and we don't get it. So John, after working for so long on this project, are, are you any clearer to why it happened and why the killings were so random? Or was that the point? That there, that, that was there the was point. No point. He, he wanted um, the wife, the ex-wife who had the kids was in the DC area. So he wanted to kill her. And if he could have found her, he would have killed her. And, and while he was there, he was so angry with the government, um, which had been compounded by his time being in the US Armed Forces during Desert Storm. He was just angry and wanted to take it out on the government, which meant terrorizing DC, which he did astonishingly effectively for 23 days. And whole bits of the story you're not seeing are just the whole cat and mouse story and the police completely following, going down cul-de-sacs and everything. And there was genuine, I think I was in DC for the first bit of it. And, and, and so soon after 9-11, and of course they'd had the, pain, the plane hitting the Pentagon, um, and, you know, Mohammed was incredibly effective at trying to do what he wanted to do, which was to terrorize the government to get them back for what he believed the government had done to him. Mm. And also, I suppose, to make the public think that they can't trust their government, that, that these people that. are incompetent sure. and can't protect Sure, sure, you. sure. And there's a the whole ton of material that sort of speaks to that, mm. um, to that point. And it felt like Malva didn't really understand that. He would just do what Mohammed told him. Uh, and that wasn't his, and he knew the kids, I think. Yeah, he did, but it was, that, was all, that was all driven by Mohammed. Mm, and Malv, Malvo, the master puppet, puppeteer, was, you know, what everyone described him as. Mm. And, and Malvo just unbelievably in his, under his influence. Um, I've got some more, but I want to throw it open to questions in a second. Is there anything that you'd like to say or add before... Um, no, they were a brilliant team and it was such a long time and I can't talk too much about where it's going. We had lots of complex situations. Uh, it, we, we're just re-editing it right now and it's going on a network in America, but they've not announced it yet. Uh, and we're having to recut it into eight episodes, which is a bit of a nightmare. That means you're not cutting any content, you're just having to reconfigure it. So we're in the middle of that right now and then I'm very pleased that the BBC saw it and loved it and will take it in the UK and I very much hope it will come to uh, Australia. Uh, very good chance it will and, and, and in other countries around the world. But after four years, you just want it to be seen, you know, and, and that's, uh, so that's nice. And I know it's on the BBC. It's on in America, I think, in June and then it's pretty soon afterwards in the BBC and I think they will... It's all about iPlayer now um, and I think because it's six hours, I think we'll just drop it as one six-hour thing. And yeah. a lot of people, the people that have seen it a lot have watched all six hours in one go. And I think it's sort of it's sort of, of now in terms of what it is as a crime serial. A binge. A binge, yeah. It's quite hard. 
stuff, but anyway. Um, I want to take some questions from the floor. Um, who's first? Yes, sir. Uh, thanks, John. Thank you for sharing it with us. Um, I just, you just talked about recutting. I wanted just to ask you, um, in the light of how uh, you were kind of waiting for content to come or the raw material to come, you didn't quite know what you'd get, at what point and why did you decide on that six-hour structure? Or, That's what? what it was. Everyone wanted six hours was the flavour du jour, you know, and we believed it would run to that if we got... We took a punt on getting the audio because we believed we would get one call a week of 15 minutes over two years, do the maths. Um, and then we fell short of that and then we got lucky and got some more. Uh, and we knew we could structure large amounts of the film without the audio. So we could put all the scaffolding in and start putting the structure up and everything. And then it was dropping it in. But I mean, they were, it was just forever in the edit. And, uh, and the directors would hop from one film to the other you know, while you were waiting for material, you know, it's, you know, I'm used to a situation where you film everything and then you do the edit, and this was um, not like that. Uh, so, I'm, I'm sorry, does that answer your question? It does, yeah, thank you. I was just wondering if um, MJ is still taking those calls from the prison, or... I mean, we talk about the connection. Oh, she's still very much in touch. And there's been a big um, lawyers around him. It went to the Supreme Court, and it looks like they've just won in Virginia, which is about sentencing young people to the death sentence. So I don't think Malvo will ever come out. But it does mean that it may have provoked a change in the law that would stop execution of minors, which I... Well, it varies from state to state. But um, so... Um, and MJ has had contact and did go and see him. What I, what I most wanted, um, I don't know, I was just obsessed with getting the shot because he, you were 23 hours in solitary and then one hour you could walk up and down, like from there to there, all surrounded by barbed wire. And I just wanted a shot of him walking backwards and forward. I just thought right at the end that would be unbelievably powerful. We got permission to film the exterior of the prison, uh, uh, but we didn't get are you still uh, but, recording? So but MJ did go and see him in prison, but of course we couldn't, you couldn't feel, because it's a supermax, so it's super tough regime, we couldn't uh, film or record or do anything with him in prison. Um, Kerry worked with me on Trace, and I think I know why, you know, we, we felt a responsibility almost to keep in touch with people, um, sexual abuse survivors after sure. the fact. So is there a, do you think there's a responsibility for program makers to just not drop yeah, no, and I think person. we're very aware once the American TX is locked, we're going to do another round uh, with the relatives. I mean, you know, we have carefully explained, uh, but the raw shock of the thing, I, I, we don't know. Some people, the, the, we, a lot of people have very different, um, um, they're in different stages of what they feel about the show. Some have got surprising, which is amazing about the human nature and human spirit. A number of them uh, express a surprising degree of sympathy for Malvo, not whatsoever for Mohammed, but understand. So it's interesting how the waverers, so there's Hardline, Kill the Bastard, there's, oh, he really had a bad set of, you know, 
Blackburn, hand of cards given to him. And then some others may, the, the film may polarize opinions both ways, I suspect. Um, hi, I wondered how much of the series you recreated to film and whether you did that in blocks depending on what audio you got back. We, um, we from day one said we really didn't want to do any recreation. So the only thing we did, because it was a character, was the blue Ford Caprice, because that was their shooting platform. So we used, we bought the exact car, the exact model of the car, exact age, and you had lots of driving. Otherwise, we just had no pictures. Um, we, we did lots, but that's not really recreation, but we used lots and lots of, of Caprice shots, and that was a character in the film. And then we did one other scene that was recreated, which was the takedown when the cops finally got the evidence, found out where the car was, and the SWAT team stormed the car. There was no archive of that. So we got the guys who actually were the SWAT team to recreate what we did, and that was about two minutes. And even that, I wasn't sure. I quite liked the purity. Uh, we've had many discussion about this, Bridget, the um, you know, re recreation, and I don't like it, and, and, and I was pretty happy that we only... I was, we sort of editorially needed that two minutes because we had no other way of resolving the moment when their number was up. Uh, but that's all we did that's proper recre. Because uh, uh, I wouldn't call the, the Caprice um, or general shots in petrol stations recreation. They're just, you need film when, it, when you've got uh, so much audio, you've got to have pictures. You know, or otherwise we should have done a podcast. It would have been a very good podcast. Next project. John. Um Obviously, when you went in, you knew you had a great story. I assume you thought you would run it chronologically through the, the untelling of it. What else did you sort of discover along the way that you just had to, that you didn't know when you went in about stylistically your approach and, you know, your answers to some of the big questions that were obviously raised through the, the process? The, the, the really, really, really interesting thing and the thing I enjoyed the most creatively was what we called the weave. So... I'm not very good on knitting, but if you just sort of imagine one long piece of wool, which was the 23-day timeline of the killing spree in, spree in Washington, and that was the backbone done absolutely chronologically. Then we had other bits of wool, which were Malvo's backstory, growing up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, joining the military, becoming uh, a Muslim, uh, his anger about the system. Uh, Malvo, growing up in Jamaica, being beaten, the hanging and all of that, all these backstories, the moment they meet, the relationship, all of those, and trying to cut those without narration to take you into it, and just crafting that and trying to get, and that's what we called the weave, the moment, the 23-day ticking time bomb was woven, and then, you know, it was all woven together, and getting those moments of weave right so they didn't feel clunky and that you could naturally go back to jamaica and we tried to use as few cards as we could so occasionally you have to have a card that says jamaica eight years earlier or something like that but just crafting that we were really and trying to do and sort of to answer a bit more what you're saying you started to get more surprising organic things started happening to the film and by weaving back at a particular moment you were getting surprising connections between the five or six stories that you had running in parallel. And that, that was dead good fun in the edit. So I shouldn't talk, use words like fun, serious, but you know what I mean? I'm just an interesting getting that moment. And the editor's really, really, really good and embraced that. And that's, and, and that 
in that juxtaposition of stories, you somehow extracted extra meaning, uh, which helped informed your perspective of both Mohammed and Malvo and America. What that very good journal at the end was saying, you know, this was a truly made in America tragedy and trying to unpack some of that naturally rather than having pundits say it, which we didn't really want. He was one exception. A supplementary, um, four years to do it, the financiers must have been getting a bit nervous by that stage. I, I have no comment about that, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we, the, we have been paid. Um, we were given a good budget uh, because what they wanted was a high quality. The bar had been very set very high. Uh, HBO had done Jinx, uh, Netflix had done Making a Murder, I think it was Netflix. The, the, all that stuff was super high quality. And our argument was, you can't ask us to do a six-hour crime serial with the fantastic access we hope to get, and we're confident we will get, and you've got to give us the wherewithal. wherewithal. And that was really, it was about time. The time for the Malvo calls to come in. And... Um, you know, some of the shows were 20 weeks in the edit, the one hour each, and, you know, just that pure edit time. You can't, <laughs> you can't do a docs like this in six weeks or eight weeks. You know, I, I think all future docs take a minimum of 20 weeks, and th these were taking the same, because the story was evolving. Mm. A new, new audio would come in, and you'd have to change an entire sequence, and, and, and so on. So to give credit to our financiers, they recognised we need, and also when we... Um, what can I, yeah, we did sort of run out of money at one point, and they were very, based on what they had seen, they gave us more money just basically to keep feeding the edit monster. So uh, that's what we had. There's one back there. Um, uh, thank you very much for the, 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 the very compelling <laughs> uh, uh, talk, John. I'm interested in how, with multiple directors and such a long production timeline, when it comes to tying things thematically together with things like music and the kind of imagery that uh, was being used even in those clips that we saw there. How, I understand there are obviously producers who had an overview of the whole thing, but how did you maintain kind of coherence with different directors who presumably had possibly different visions in terms of what they were unpacking in the story? Um, um, Ursula was, was like lead director and, and imposed a sort of visual style. Um, I had a really good exec producer, Sam Starbuck, who was all over the detail, and I couldn't let go. And, and also a lot of pressure was put under me about delivery, so I was on the line. So I spent massively more in the cutting room than I had imagined, massively more. And, and I was a common factor across all six. But I, it's not about claiming individual credit because it was amazing teamwork. and. Uh, and, and then just very good editors, and then the whole uh, sound design, gunshots apart, and the, um, and the music just of the highest order, and all of that. You just, you know, that's the beauty of what's happening with television and the way standards, you know, with, and the SVOD factor and everything. That, that you, can't do, you can't ask an audience to watch one story for six hours with no narration. And it's a bit shit, can you? But I mean, some are, but it's sort of, they have got the right to expect something that's quite well made. And that was always on our, on our mind. There was one down the front before. Joseph, yeah. oh, Joseph yes. 
No comment. What, <laughs> what really interests me most is the moral dilemma of these shows and that we know true crime rates and can cut through and use the word murder porn. But for me, there's always that kind of moral... Is there, was there any kind of guiding principles you have? Maybe it's even when you're taking on the project or in the edit that you come back to to make sure you're not tipping into the salaciousness or however you want to frame it. it I mean, that's a really important question and we talk about it a lot and... You know, it's, I'm just doing right now, I'm very absorbed in a couple of projects for the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And is that disaster porn? Or is it a really important film about one of the most important events in all our lifetimes? Um, is a film that, seri that handles people well? You know, I mean, I've done a lot of crime over the years. Our company, as you know, does a lot of crime. Crime is very rich journalistic, you know about that, Rach, mm. with Trace and the stuff you do. Um, and it's, it's legitimate journalistic territory. I think we said important and revealing things. We gave a true platform to lots of diverse voices, including the cold-blooded killer and his victims. And I think we enrich, I don't want to sound too pretentious, but... There's more of a takeaway than, oh, look at that shot. Uh, and I do think if your intent is honourable and your aspirations are high, it doesn't feel tawdry. Yeah. And and as crime, the, the general, yeah, there's so much crime, be it scripted or non-scripted. Um, you know, even a film I love like Parasite, they all end up bloody shooting themselves at the end. And and. Um, it's just that's the world we're in. But I guess if you do it, try and do it well, I guess would be the guiding light. And that maybe makes you feel more comfortable. But I do accept it's a debate, sure, sure. Mm, I, but that's I, true, look, you know, attack me for doing a 9-11 show. I mean, or I do plane crashes, or because I'm fascinated about the, we did with Jen and Bridget, you know, all that time about death on Everest. Um, it's. That, that's where the truth of the human experience is and that's where that's what we that's what we do yeah i like that idea about if you have an honorable intention and keeping that as your touchstone and keeping coming back to that um we've got about a minute to go does anyone have another question um john it's just a question about the team you talked about editors were you running multiple yeah edit rooms yeah, and, and, and how did and you cohere the kind of the storyline through you know, the we, simultaneous editing. Uh, the two directors responsible for three shows, but we used Predators on three and... Uh, so they were properly doing two and sort of across the third each with six with three six cutting rooms going at any one time. Uh, well, six cutting rooms at all times. Not at all times, but at peak time. Yeah, it was a complete nightmare. <laughs> uh, unless you're the edit facility, in which case it was a nice little learner. <laughs> Uh, and so your next Sorry, project, really is, good. Sorry, next project is what, six years? Which one? Your next project, will that take six years or a bit shorter than four years? Which one? Whatever one you're working on at the moment. The 9-11 things have got an anniversary coming up, so it's got to be ready. And uh, good projects take a, a lot of the things I've done have taken a long time. And, but that's normally to get access, to get rights or whatever. And, the, you know, a couple of things I'm doing now... Taken too long. I've been on one project now for seven years, and, and we haven't filmed yet. And, 
probably won't for another three years. But uh, as long as you're doing other things, it doesn't matter. We've been very lucky to have you with us today. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks, everyone, for coming.